0: Hey, it's Jeff Semple filling in for Alan Carter this week. Here's what's on the podcast today. The U.S. Democratic National Convention wraps up. Today is the final day to vote for the next Conservative leader. And what do Canadians think of Justin Trudeau now? All that coming up. Let's get to it. The Democratic Convention went out on a high note last night. Joe Biden officially accepting the nomination as the Democratic candidate for this upcoming presidential election. A lot of chatter, a lot of reaction to the Joe Biden speech last night. Uh, And it was interesting listening to it. Um, Some real sort of prominent themes. uh, At times it almost sounded like he was a character in Star Wars talking about You know, the light side versus the dark side, good versus evil. Have a listen to the now Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst.
1: I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together and make no mistake. United we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America.
0: So there you have it. Darkness versus the light. Biden versus President Donald Trump. And of course, as we've heard from the president's re-election campaign thus far, portraying Biden over and over again as this doddering old fool basically, who stumbles over words, forgets things, just generally not up to the job. And of course, at 78 years old, Biden would be the oldest person to ever become elected as a first term president, taking that record from Donald Trump. Um, So last night was really billed as Biden's best chance thus far to try and fight back against that image that the Trump campaign has been building for him of this old guy who's just too tired and not up for the job. How did he do? Well, uh, let's ask. We've got Renan Levine, who is a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto Scarborough on the line. Thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. Thank you. So what did you make uh, of uh, Mr. Biden's performance last night?
1: Well, I, I, I think your introduction had it spot on, that if you were watching, expecting senility, you were really disappointed.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and what Yeah. Well, what well, stood out well, to well, you specifically?
1: Quite, quite a letdown. I mean, yes, he is reading from a script, but he read it well. Um, he made some forceful points. Um, I had, I think, we had spoken maybe last week, maybe with one of your colleagues, and I said um, one of the things I mentioned was that he should probably convey a lot like Jack Layton ca- conveyed in his last campaigns for federal office, um, where he was this Uncle Jack, he was a very caring, empathetic character, and. Um, Joe Biden did that, uh, so much so that I think a lot of Canadian viewers um, that, you know, you talked about that white darkness. There were explicit echoes of that, of course, in Jack Layton's famous letter uh, at the end of his life to his country, and Biden you know, really uh, echoed that very much. Um, but he also did get into some detail. Um, it, it, it wasn't a completely, you know, Clinton-esque policy wonk speech, but he talked about uh, how he intended to fight the coronavirus. Uh, he talks about a number of different policy areas that um, showed that he has command of a lot of, at least some policy details and was able to do it in a way that I think was difficult for a lot of politicians. He was speaking to a almost completely empty room. And uh, as speaking as a university professor who is now teaching online, that is a huge transition. You're used to having an audience. You're used to having applause lines. And so he and his speechwriting team really had to make some adjustments, and they made it. I mean, is it one of the, these speeches that you know we're going to study in 20 years and uh, watch again and again and again? Doubt it, because these kind of speeches rarely are. But It did what Biden needed it to do, which is make it clear he understands what's going on, make it clear he is concerned, sympathetic and empathetic, and he's not senile.
0: Yeah, and you said the word empathetic there. And I was going to ask you, I mean, you know, that that was one of the, the themes, I think you're right, that really came out is that he was this more empathetic character preaching the kinder brand of politics, which, of course, sounds nice. But does that really work to swing voters, do you think? Well,
1: you know, in a lot, in some elections, um, yes, we often, as political scientists, um, we often ask a poll question of, like, which candidate do you think cares more about people like you? And in a lot of elections, that does matter on both sides of the border. Um, people do care often, uh, not always, but they do often care about a candidate that cares about people like you. Um, and I think that given the challenges uh, that america is facing that that is a message that is spot on right now for me the most effective part and emotional part of the evening was they had a 13 year old boy with a stutter who talked about meeting biden on the campaign trail early this year in new hampshire and how much biden worked with him and talked with him and gave him suggestions to help him overcome stuttering which biden also suffers from and, uh, and, and it was just a really compelling moment, but also an incredible contrast to the incumbent president, who has a very hard time conveying sympathy or empathy. Um, and given the problems in the economy and the COVID issues uh, and the protests um, over Black Lives Matter po- after the George Floyd killing, uh, I think that that... Is a message that very much resonates with Americans today. That said, there are very few Americans who, at least right now, say that they're still deciding about this race. Donald Trump's been president for almost four years, and there's a lot of really strong opinions, yes or no. So um, it, some of the people that I live with said, We're not going to bother watching, we already know who we're going to vote for.
0: Yeah, no, no kidding. And I mean, yeah, if you haven't seen enough from Donald Trump, I'm not sure you know what you're what else you you're waiting for. He's certainly been uh, a president in, in the news cycle. And before we let you go, we're talking to Ryan Levine from uh, the University of Toronto, professor of political science. Um, you know, I, as I noted there off the top, Ryan, and we're talking you know Doug Ford, Justin Trudeau making this joint announcement today, uh, funding Canadian manufacturing of N95 medical masks, and that of course was prompted in no small part by Trump's decision to stop to order the the end of those shipments coming north of the border for Canada back in April. Um, do you, from anything we heard in the speech or anything we've heard from Biden so far that helps sort of give us some insight into what a Biden presidency might mean for Canada-U.S. relations in contrast to what we've been experiencing over the past few years?
1: Well, I, you know, that that is a common question um, that I get when I um, speak um, to... It. Hosts like you and and many of your listeners will often contact me uh, on Twitter and via email and be, well, what does it mean for Canada? And usually I say, Canada is just not high on the American radar, Uh, probably for good reasons that it's not an issue that Americans badly divide over, so it doesn't become prominent in presidential campaigns. Um, Of course, last night, the fact that Biden may have borrowed a bit from Jack Layton um, sort of makes Canada more prominent than it ever normally would have been. But really, in terms of U.S.-Canadian relations, the real change that's different from the norm is the fact that Biden's running mate, Kamala Harris, grew up in Montreal. So for the first time, we have some, uh, first time in modern history, at least, we have someone on the ticket who, like, is very familiar with Canada. So I don't know to what extent she's familiar with some of the big issues right now that divide Canadians and Americans. But she certainly, you know, she went to West Mount High in Montreal. I mean, this is someone who knows Canadians and Canadians know her. And I, I you know, when have we ever had that on the American ticket?
0: That's it, yeah. And we've uh, here at Global News certainly been talking to people who you know remember growing up alongside her in uh, Montreal. So that's an interesting point. And uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but that is uh, Ryan Levine, uh, political science professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Thanks so much again for joining us here on Global My News Radio. Party. Really appreciate it. Happy Friday and happy last day of voting. If you are a member of the Federal Conservative Party, this is your last chance to mail in that ballot and uh, place your vote on who you want to be the next leader of the Federal Conservative. Party, Perhaps even the next prime minister, if Justin Trudeau keeps shooting himself in the foot and getting himself subject to an ethics investigation every few months. Um, Four candidates on the ballot paper for conservatives to choose from. Um, The perceived frontrunners, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. Uh, and I've heard jokes recently about the fact that they are more or less carbon copies of each other. Uh, and there was a column in McLean, uh, McLean's magazine that noted they're both middle-aged white guys who took law at Dahl, followed their dads into politics, served in the Harper cabinet like pipelines, struggled with French, and recognized Pride Month. So... You know, Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole, carbon copies of each other, more or less. Not quite, but of course, we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, The wild card, potentially in the race, a lot of people talking about Leslyn Lewis is a uh, Toronto lawyer, a political novice, um, a black woman. And trailing up the rear is Derek Sloan, uh, who is not expected to factor prominently in the race, sort of the closest thing the Conservatives have to a Trumpian candidate, uh, I believe, sort of rallying the socially conservative values within the party. Um, You know, and I was sort of struck reading the biographies of all four candidates that um, it appears for the first time in a long time, none of the candidates is from Western Canada, so Sloane is from Ontario, O'Toole from Montreal, McKay from Nova Scotia. Lewis was born in Jamaica, now lives in Toronto. So no matter who wins the race on Sunday, yeah, they won't be from the West. And that's uh, interesting. First time in a long time the Conservative Party will have a leader not representing Western Canada. And so no matter who wins, it will be interesting to see if this represents an effort by the party to make inroads in Eastern Canada and places like Toronto and the greater Toronto area. Um, so, Yeah. Lots on the line, of course, this Sunday and with a little bit more about what to expect and the central question facing conservative voters. Here's our global news correspondent from the Ottawa Bureau, David Aiken.
2: If you believe that, you know, we should stick to our principles, maybe more socially conservative, pull us out of the climate change deals around the world then you're probably voting for Derek Sloan or Leslie Lewis, maybe Aaron O'Toole. If you think that the ballot question here is getting rid of Justin Trudeau, you're probably looking at O'Toole and or McKay. So we'll find out, I guess, uh, on Sunday night when they count the ballots, what view prevailed in the party. But that is the rift
0: right now. There you have it, the rift from the vantage point of David Aiken in our Global News Ottawa Bureau. And let's talk more about this now with Andrew McDougall, who is from the Political Science School at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Andrew McDougall, thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. So, yeah, what are you watching for this Sunday? I I don't know if you're a betting man, but uh, any predictions in terms of how this will play out?
2: Oh, I think Peter is going to get this, um, and this is going to be a return for him to the leadership of uh, the Conservative Party. I mean, originally he was the uh, leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, and then it merged, and Stephen Harper took. This is a role that he's had in the past, and most people are expecting him to come back and uh, take leadership again.
0: That's it. Uh, notwithstanding, though, the fact that, you know, what at first, you know, at the beginning of this campaign, um, looked like more or less a coronation for Peter McKay, uh, was then, you know, largely thwarted by Peter McKay himself, who it seemed like every time I opened Twitter for a while there, he was apologizing for something uh, that he had said uh, that he then took back. Um, So, you know, does he come out of this race slightly damaged, in your opinion?
1: Yes, sir.
2: I think the reputation kind of for a while, was being somebody that sometimes struggles a little bit with uh, her. Um, but I mean, Peter McKay has been around for a very long time. He's very, very well known in conservative circles. Uh, I mean, I think if they decide to go with Peter, they're getting somebody that they know and somebody that they're comfortable with. And I think most Canadians are fairly familiar with him, too. So even if he had uh, some, some uh, rough spots as part of the campaign, uh, and he's, he's very familiar, and so I think um, people won't be will be expecting to get what they've seen over the last uh, you know 20 years or so.
0: Speaking with Andrew McDougall from the School of Political Science at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and apologies there, the line seems to be breaking up a little bit, Andrew, but I think we've got you. Um, and want to ask you, you know, assuming you're right, what that means for the party. As you mentioned, you know, Peter McKay has been around for a while, uh, but certainly Andrew Shear, you know, was talking about the need to u- unite the party. Uh, but Peter McKay, do you expect to him to take it more towards the centre politically than perhaps we'd seen from the likes of Andrew Shear?
2: Well, whoever wins is going to have to unify the party, and so that's going to be, you know, top uh, top of mind for him. Um, but he comes from a very central part of the the party, so I think he's well positioned to bridge the different factions that he's going to be facing in the party if he wins.
0: Right, but in, and in terms of though, um, you know, we Andrew Shear got in, into a lot of hot water over his, you know, lack of support personally for same-sex marriage, for example. Right, uh, whereas with Peter McKay, you have someone who is open to marching in a gay pride parade. Um, so, you know, on, on obviously when we talk about conservatives and or liberals, but pat- conservatives particularly in this context, of course, we're talking fiscally conservative, socially conservative. How would you describe Peter McKay? In that context,
2: he definitely comes from the more liberal wing of the party when it comes to social issues. As you said, he's very comfortable with uh, supporting same sex marriage and, and he's pro-choice. So he definitely comes from from that tradition. Uh, and he gets, of course, some criticism from the social conservative side uh, on many conservatives. You should really be sort of in the center of the opinion on those issues. And, and Peter McKay seems to be. And so I think gambling is going
0: to make him a very electable character. And I was just about to ask you that before we let you go. I mean, in terms of what whoever the next leader is, what do they need to do to get elected? I mean, you know, Justin Trudeau has, as I noted, had a number of missteps through the summer. I mean, his polling numbers were soaring through the pandemic, and then we see the We Charity controversy, the prorogation of Parliament, and yet, uh, and we're going to talk to a pollster later in the hour about his latest polling numbers. But you know, relatively speaking, they're polling quite well. Um, So, what will it take? for the next Conservative leader to make that party electable against Justin Trudeau?
2: He's definitely got his work cut out for him. Uh, the parliament has been prorogued, but when he comes back, he's going to have some stuff to work with, with, first of all, the We Charity scandal that Canadians are paying very close attention to, uh, but also to attack whatever it is that... ...speech. We're all kind of waiting to see what that looks like. Uh, and once they have a better sense of it, to suggest that that's not what Canadians really want, that he's got a better platform.
0: Andrew McDougall, a lecturer in the political science at uh, U of UFT in Scarborough. Thanks so much for joining us here on the program. Really appreciate it, and have a great weekend. No problem. Please spare a thought for our global news colleagues in Ottawa who have not had a summer. Uh, it is, you know, typically the, the dog days of summer that we expect to see in this news business generally, particularly in Ottawa, where things usually really quiet down, of course, have done anything but what a crazy week it was in political Canada. Um, in the span of just a couple of days at the beginning of the week, we saw this surprise resignation from Bill Morneau, the federal finance minister, uh, thousands of documents released pertaining to the We Charity controversy. We saw Christian Freeland become the country's first federal finance minister and now Justin Trudeau has prorogued Parliament until September. So, yeah, as I noted, about, you know, a month's worth of news crammed into a couple of days. A lot to talk about and to digest And, you know, naturally now asking the question, how do Canadians feel about all of that that has transpired this week? Um, And to sort of take the temperature of Canadians after a crazy political week, we are joined on the line by Sean Simpson. He's the vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs, the polling firm, of course. Sean, thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. My pleasure. So, uh, some new polling to talk about, I know, done in conjunction with Global News. Um, What did you find?
3: Yeah, well, we were actually in field amidst all of this happening, uh, most notably the resignation of, the, uh, of, of uh, Bill Morneau, the, the finance minister. Uh, and uh, so we actually have 1,000 interviews that we conducted ahead of his resignation and 1,000 interviews that we conducted after his resignation, so we can see what the immediate impact is. And uh, pre-resignation, the Liberals had a decent lead of about five points over the, the Conservatives, uh, but following the resignation, that five-point lead shrunk to just a one-point lead, essentially a statistical tie. So back in the popular vote, we have a horse race ahead of us uh, heading into uh, a fall session, which will see a new speech from the throne and, uh, and budget, of course.
0: Yeah, interesting. And, and, you know, as we were just discussing on the program, that polling done with a basically leaderless conservative party, um, you know, party poised to choose its new leader on Sunday. So what's your expectation in terms of what that could mean for the polls come September?
3: Yeah, well I mean obviously it depends on who uh, who's uh, who gets elected I, I think if if Peter McKay wins the the race uh, you know he's, he's a known quantity at least uh, the name recognition will be much higher than the other three candidates uh, and uh, so if if Peter McKay doesn't win you know we could be in a situation where where the Tory vote is is a little softer uh, just simply because of the unknown quantity uh, and uh, you know it, 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 it's both a uh, a disadvantage because of the the low name recognition, but also an advantage because the Tories will get to start from a clean slate. And the you know, the Liberals will obviously take their best shot at at painting the new leader in a certain color before Canadians can make up their mind, but you know, we'd have a new leader that, that doesn't come with the same sort of uh, baggage, I suppose, that, uh, that Peter McKay would bring. But, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, at this point in time, it's a, it's a very, very modest uh, liberal lead, a uh, statistical tie, essentially. Uh, but I'm expecting things to change. Of course, we've had the prorogation of, of Parliament. We're going to have a new Tory leader. And then in September, Canadians will be able to weigh in on what the prime minister's plan is going forward. Uh, We know that Bill Morenoe maybe wasn't too excited by it, but uh, the rest of Canadians may very well be.
0: That's it. And obviously that reference to Bill Morneau, a reference to the leaks that um, sort of trickled out in the week before he announced his resignation, um, that, you know, Bill Morneau was breaking up with Justin Trudeau and the federal party, uh, the federal government to think. And I don't think it's hard to find anyone who actually thinks that was Bill Morneau's idea. Uh, it's interesting, though, as you noted, I mean, given all the polls that you and your team conduct, this one sort of done just before and just after Bill Morneau resigned. Um And wanted to ask you, you touched on this a little bit already, but in terms of, you know, what is it in all of those events, the We Charity controversy, the Bill Morneau resignation, the prorogation of parliament? I mean, are, are there particular pieces in there that are really making lasting damage to Justin Trudeau's prime ministership?
3: Yeah, I think that the, the, the prorogation of Parliament, you know, often has a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, but it doesn't really play out in, in an election, uh, you know, so to speak, uh, because it, it, it's, it's old news by then. The, the we and the Morneau thing are kind of tied together a little bit. Um, and, you know, a majority of Canadians in our polls say that, you know, we does represent demonstrate another, yes, another, Ethical lapse on part of the prime minister, so he's had now sort of the holy trinity of, of, of lapses uh, with uh, Joey issue, the Joey Wilson Raybould issue, the the you know the trips to the private islands in the in the Caribbean, and now we and so it, it's establishing a bit of a pattern. But what we also see is that the prime minister is a little bit like Dalton McGuinty was, uh, you know, in in Ontario, the Teflon prime minister. You know, if, if the Conservatives couldn't take him down in the last election. You know, over the Jody Wilson-Raybould issue, you know what makes them think that the Wee scandal is that much worse? Well, it's not that it's worse or better; it's just continuation of the of the pattern. Uh, the the, the finance, finance minister got caught up in it a little bit, but of course Trudeau couldn't dismiss him on those grounds alone, otherwise he'd have to fire himself as well. <laughs>
0: That's it. And it's uh, it'll be interesting to see, given these poll results, you know, what the opposition parties decide to do come the fall in that throne speech. Um, you know, we would heard the bloc calling for an election, but the Conservatives didn't seem too interested. We were talking to Conservative MP Pierre Polyev on this program earlier this week who, you know, was sounded pretty reluctant uh, when, asked, uh, when I asked him if they were interested in, a, in an election. I mean, he sort of framed it in this idea that, well, no, we don't want an election now. We want the full story about the wheat charity controversy to come out yeah. first, and then Canadians will have the full picture. So whether you believe that's a legitimate reason or not. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because up until just recently, wasn't the prime minister polling much better than this?
3: Yeah, and his approval ratings are actually still above fifty percent. They're not at the seventy percent where it was during the lockdown. But by and large, Canadians have uh, approved of, of what the government has been doing to date. It doesn't say anything about what's to come. Now, when we're back in, and committees are in session, the, the, the Tories especially are, are going to be hammering home the wee the scandal. But that you know, the ship may have sailed. Um, Canadians are likely going to want to hear more about. The policies that the Liberals are proposing in the the next throne speech and budget and whether or not they have merit, then something that Canadians already kind of know the answer to, which is, yes, it it, it was an ethical lapse on part of of the prime minister. He shouldn't have done it. But a majority of Canadians in our polling say that they're ready to move on. And it's you know, it's probably the really only conservative voters who are, are still are still stuck on the issue and, and want to learn more. So it remains to be seen what any further line of investigation is actually going to reveal that Canadians already don't suspect. In other words, I think the WE scandal is is kind of baked into the numbers that we're seeing right now.
0: Interesting. And it's something I've often remarked in in, you know, getting sent around the world to cover elections all over the place. uh, And you sort of see culturally the differences between countries and how they think about politics. Canadians, relatively speaking, you know, I used to be based in the UK and done a lot of reporting in the US, were a forgiving bunch, I think. Uh, You know, the old Canadian apologist, uh, turn the other cheek. Uh, love to give second and third chances, but as you say, the holy trinity of ethics investigations or unholy trinity, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> wonder how yeah. much that's uh, weighing on Canadians' patience right now. And uh, thanks for helping to check their check their temperature as always, Sean Simpson, Vice President with Ipsos Public Affairs. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.